Chapter Twelve of Home Life in Colonial Days by Alice Morse Earle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dress of the Colonists At the time America was settled, rich dress was almost universal in Europe among persons of any wealth or station the dress of plain people also such as yeomen and small farmers and work people was plentiful and substantial and even peasants had good and ample clothing materials were strongly and honestly made clothing was sewed by hand and lasted long the fashions did not change from year to year and the rich or stout clothes of one generation were bequeathed by will and worn by a second and even a third and fourth generation in england extravagance in dress in court circles and grotesqueness in dress among all educated folk had become abhorrent to that class of persons who were called puritans and as an expression of their dislike they wore plainer garments and cut off their flowing locks and soon were called roundheads the massachusetts settlers who were puritans determined to discourage extravagance in dress in the new world and attempted to control the fashions the massachusetts magistrates were reminded of their duties in this direction by sanctimonious spurring from gentlemen and ministers in england one such meddler wrote to governor winthrop in sixteen thirty six quote, many in your plantations discover too much pride unquote. another stern moralist reproved the colonists for writing to england quote, for cutwork quaffs for deep stammel dyes unquote, to be sent to america others prohibited from wearing broad laces were criticized for ordering narrow ones for quote, going as far as they may unquote. in sixteen thirty four the massachusetts general court passed restricting sumptuary laws these laws forbade the purchase of woolen silk or linen garments with silver gold silk or thread lace upon them two years later a narrow binding of lace was permitted on linen garments the colonists were ordered not to make or buy any slashed clothes except those with one slash in each sleeves and another slash on the back. Quote, Cut works, 
embroid or needle or caps bands or rails unquote, and gold or silver girdles hat bands belts ruffs and beaver hats were forbidden liberty was thriftily given however to the colonists to wear out any garments they chanced to have unless in the form of inordinately slashed apparel immoderate great sleeves and rails and long wings which could not possibly be endured in sixteen thirty nine men's attire was approached and scanned and quote, immoderate great breeches unquote, were tabooed also broad shoulder bands double ruffles and capes and silk roses which latter adornment were worn on the shoes in sixteen fifty one the court again expressed its quote, utter detestation that men and women of mean condition education and calling should take upon them the garb of gentlemen by wearing of gold or silver lace or buttons or points at their knees or walk in great boots or women of the same rank to wear silk or tiffany hoods or scarves unquote. many persons were quote, presented unquote, under this law men boot wearers as well as women hood wearers in salem in sixteen fifty two a man was presented for quote, excess in boots ribbons gold and silver lace unquote. in newbury in sixteen fifty three two women were brought up for wearing silk hoods and scarves but they were discharged on proof that their husbands were worth two hundred pounds each in northampton in the year sixteen seventy six a wholesale attempt was made by the magistrates to abolish quote, wicked apparel unquote. Thirty-eight women of the Connecticut Valley were presented at one time for various degrees of finery, and as of too small estate to wear silk. A young girl named Hannah Lyman was presented for, quote, wearing silk in a flaunting manner, in an offensive way and garb not only before but when she stood presented unquote. thirty young men were also presented for silk wearing long hair and other extravagances the calm flaunting of her silk in the very eyes of the court by sixteen-year-old hannah was premonitory of the waning power of the magistrates 
for similar prosecutions at a later date were quashed by sixteen eighty two the tables were turned and we find the court arraigned the selectmen of five towns for not prosecuting offenders against these laws as in previous years in sixteen seventy five the town of dedham had been similarly warned and threatened but apparently was never prosecuted connecticut called to its aid in repressing extravagant dress the economic power of taxation by ordering that whoever wore gold or silver lace gold or silver buttons silk ribbons silk scarves or bone lace worth over three shillings a yard should be taxed as worth a hundred and fifty pounds virginia fussed a little over quote, excess in clothes unquote. sir francis wyatt was enjoined not to permit any but the council and the heads of hundreds to wear gold on their clothes or to wear silk till they made it which was intended more to encourage silk making than to discourage silk wearing and it provided that unmarried men should be assessed according to their apparel and married men according to that of their family in sixteen sixty virginia colonists were ordered to import no quote, silk stuff in garments or in pieces except for hoods and scarves nor silver or gold lace or bone lace or silk or threads nor ribbons wrought with gold or silver in them unquote. the ministers did not fail in their duty in attempting to march with the magistrates in the restriction and simplification of dress they preached often against quote, intolerable pride in clothes and hair unquote. even when the pilgrims were in holland the preachers had been deeply disturbed over the dress of their minister's wife madame johnson who wore quote, lawn coives and busks and a velvet hood and quote, whalebones in her petticoat bodice unquote, and worst of all quote, a topish hat unquote. one of the earliest interferences of roger williams was when he instructed the women of salem parish to wear veils in public but john cotton preached to them the next sunday and he proved to the dames and goodwives that veils were a sign and symbol of undue subjection to their husbands and salem women soon proved their rights by coming barefaced to meeting mr davenport preached about men's headgear that men must take off their hats and stand up at the announcement of the text and if new haven men wore their hats in meeting i can't see why they fuss so over quakers broad brims after a while the whole church interfered in seventeen sixty nine the church at andover put it to a vote whether Quote, 
the parish disapprove of the female sex sitting with their hats on in the meeting-house in time of divine service as being indecent unquote. in the town of abington in seventeen seventy five it was voted that it was quote, an indecent way that the female sex do sit with their hats and bonnets on to worship God. Unquote. Still another town voted that it was the quote, town's mind unquote, that the women should take their bonnets off in meeting and hang them quote, on the pegs. Unquote we do not know positively but i suspect that the bonnets continued to grace the heads instead of the pegs in andover abington and other towns to know how the colonists were dressed we have to learn from the lists of their clothing which they left by will which lists are still preserved in court records from the inventories of the garments furnished to each settler who came by contract from the orders sent back to england for new clothing from a few crude portraits and from some articles of ancient clothing which are still preserved when salem was settled the massachusetts bay company furnished clothes to all the men who immigrated and settled that town Every man had four pairs of shoes, four pairs of stockings, a pair of Norwich garters, four shirts, two suits of doublet and hose of leather lined with oilskin, a woolen suit lined with leather, four bands, two handkerchiefs, a green cotton waistcoat, a leather belt, a woolen cap, a black hat, two red-knit caps, two pairs of gloves, a mandillion or cloak lined with cotton, and an extra pair of breeches. Little boys, just as soon as they could walk, wore clothes made precisely like their fathers. Doublets, which were double jackets, leather knee-breeches, leather belts, knit caps, the outfit for the virginia planters was not so liberal for the company was not so wealthy it was called quote, particular of apparel unquote. it had only three bands three pairs of stockings and three shirts instead of four the suits were of canvas frieze and cloth the clothing was doubtless lighter because the climate of virginia was warmer there were no gloves no handkerchiefs no hat no red-knit caps no mandillion no extra pair of breeches they had quote, a dozen points unquote, which are simply tapes to hold up the clothing and fasten it together the clothing of the piscataqua planters varied but little from the others they had scarlet waistcoats and cassocks of cloth not of leather we are apt to think of the puritan settlers of new england as sombre in attire 
wearing quote, sad colored unquote, garments but green and scarlet waistcoats and scarlet caps certainly afforded a gay touch of color a young boy about ten years old named john livingston was sent from new york to school in new england at the latter part of the seventeenth century and quote, account of his new linen and clothes unquote, has been preserved and it gives an excellent idea of the clothing of a son of wealthy people at that time it reads thus in the old spelling quote, eleven new shirts four pair lace sleeves eight plain cravats four cravats with lace four striped waistcoats with black buttons one flowered waistcoat four new ossenburg breeches one gray hat with a black ribbon one gray hat with a blue ribbon one dozen black buttons one dozen colored buttons three pair gold buttons three pair silver buttons two pair fine blue stockings one pair fine red stockings four white handkerchiefs two speckled handkerchiefs five pair gloves one stuffed coat with black buttons one cloth coat one pair blue plush breeches one pair serge breeches two combs one pair new shoes silken thread to mend his clothes ossenbrig was a heavy strong linen this would seem to be a summer outfit and scarcely warm enough for new england winters other schoolboys at that date had deerskin breeches leather was much used especially in the form of tanned buckskin breeches and deerskin hunters jackets which have always and deservedly been a favorite wear since they are one of the most appropriate useful comfortable and picturesque garments ever worn by men in any active outdoor life soon in the larger cities and among wealthy folk a much more elaborate and varied style of dress became fashionable the dress of little girls and families of wealth was certainly almost as formal and elegant as the dress of their mamas and it was a very hampering and stiff dress they wore vast hoop petticoats heavy stays and high-heeled shoes their complexions were objects of special care they wore masks of cloth or velvet to protect them from the tanning rays of the sun and long-armed gloves little dolly payne who afterwards became the wife of president madison went to school wearing a white linen mask to keep every ray of sunshine from the complexion a sunbonnet sewed on her head every morning by her careful mother and long gloves covering the hands and arms our present love of outdoor life of athletic sports and our indifference to being sunburned makes such painstaking vanity seem most unbearably tiresome 
in seventeen thirty seven colonel john lewis sent from virginia to england for a wardrobe for a young miss a schoolgirl who was his ward the list read thus quote, a cape ruffle and tucker the lace five shillings a yard one pair white stays eight pairs white kid gloves two pair colored kid gloves two pair worsted hose three pair thread hose one pair silk shoes laced one pair morocco shoes one hoop coat one hat four pair plain spanish shoes two pair calf shoes one mask one fan one necklace one girdle and buckle one piece fashionable calico four yards ribbon for knots one and a half yard cambric a mantua and coat of lute string unquote. in the middle of the century george washington also sent to england for an outfit for his stepdaughter miss custis she was four years old and he ordered for her pack thread stays stiff coats of silk masks caps bonnets bibs ruffles necklaces fans silk and calamanco shoes and leather pumps there were also eight pairs of kid mitts and four pairs of gloves these with the masks show that this little girl's complexion was also to be well guarded a little new england miss huntington when twelve years old was sent from norwich connecticut to be quote, finished unquote, in a boston boarding school she had twelve silk gowns but her teacher wrote home that she must have another gown of quote, a recently imported rich fabric unquote, which was at once bought for her because it was quote, suitable for her rank and station unquote. through the seventeenth and eighteenth century there was a constant succession of rich and gay fashions for american dress was carefully modeled upon european especially english modes men's wear was as rich as women's an english traveler said that boston women and men in seventeen forty dressed as gay every day as courtiers in england at a coronation but with all the richness there was no wastefulness the sister of the rich boston merchant peter faneuil who built faneuil hall sent her gowns to london to be turned and dyed and her old ribbons and gowns to be sold but her gowns which are still preserved are of magnificent stuffs new yorkers were dressed in gauzes silks and laces even women Quakers in Pennsylvania had to be warned against wearing hoop petticoats, scarlet shoes, and puffed and rolled hair. The family of so frugal a man as Benjamin Franklin did not escape a slight infection of the prevailing love for gay dress. 
in the pennsylvania gazette this advertisement appeared in seventeen fifty whereas on saturday night last the house of benjamin franklin of this city printer was broken open and the following things feloniously taken away viz a double necklace of gold beads a woman's scarlet cloak almost new with a double cape a woman's gown of printed cotton of the sort called brocade print very remarkable the ground dark with large red roses and other large and yellow flowers with blue in some of the flowers with many green leaves a pair of woman's stays covered with white tabby before and dove-colored tabby behind with two large steel hooks and sundry other goods etc southern dames especially of annapolis baltimore and charleston were said to have the richest brocades and damasks that could be bought in london every sailing vessel that came from europe brought boxes of splendid clothing the heroes of the revolution had a high regard for dress the patriot john hancock was seen at noonday wearing a scarlet velvet cap a blue damask gown lined with velvet white satin embroidered waistcoat black satin small clothes white silk stockings red morocco slippers george washington was most precise in his orders for his clothing and wore the richest silk and velvet suits a true description of a boston printer just after the revolution shows his style of dress he wore a pea-green coat white vest nankin small clothes white silk stockings and pumps fastened with silver buckles which covered at least half the foot from instep to toe his small clothes were tied at the knees with ribbon of the same color in double bows the ends reaching down to the ankles his hair in front was well loaded with pomatum frizzled or craped and powdered behind his natural hair was augmented by the audition of a large queue called vulgarly a false tail which enrolled in some yards of black ribbon hung halfway down his back Unquote. many letters still exist written by prominent citizens of colonial times ordering clothing chiefly from europe rich laces silk materials velvet and fine cloth of light and gay colors abound frequently they ordered nightgowns of silk and damask these nightgowns were not a garment worn at night but a sort of dressing-gown harvard students were in seventeen fifty four forbidden to wear them under the name of banyan they became very fashionable and men had their portraits painted in them for instance the portrait of nicholas bolston now in harvard memorial hall with the increase of trade with china 
many chinese and east indian goods became fashionable with hundreds of different names a few were of silk or linen but far more of cotton among them nankeens were the most important and even for winter wear both men and women wore for many years great cloaks or capes known by various names such as rocheleurs capuchins pelisses etc women's shoes were of very thin materials and paper soled they wore to protect these frail shoes when walking on the ill-paved streets various forms of overshoes known as shoes, clogs patent etc when riding women in the colonies wore as did queen elizabeth a safeguard a long over petticoat to protect the gown from mud and rain this was sometimes called a foot mantle also a weather skirt a traveller tells of seeing a row of horses tied to a fence outside a quaker meeting some carried side saddles some men's saddles and pillions on the fence hung the muddy safeguards the quaker dames had worn outside their drab petticoats men wore sherry valleys or spatter dashes to protect their gay breeches there was one fashion which lasted for a century and a half which was so untidy so uncomfortable so costly and so ridiculous that we can only wonder that it was endured for a single season i mean the fashion of wig wearing by men the first colonists wore their own natural hair the cavaliers had long and perfumed love-locks and though the puritans had been called roundheads their hair waved also over the band or collar and often hung over the shoulder the quakers also wore long locks as a lovely portrait of william penn shows but by sixteen seventy five wigs had become common enough to be denounced by the massachusetts government and to be preached against by many ministers while other ministers proudly wore them wigs were called horrid bushes of vanity and hundreds of other disparaging names which seemed to make them more popular they varied from year to year sometimes they swelled out at the sides or rose in great puffs or turned under in heavy rolls or hung in braids and curls and pigtails they were made of human hair of horse hair goat's hair calves and cows tails of thread silk and mohair they had scores of silly and meaningless names such as grave full bottom giddy feather top long tail fox tail drop wig etc they were bound and braided with pink green red and purple ribbons sometimes all these colors on one wig they were very heavy and very hot and very expensive often costing what would be equal to a hundred dollars today the care of them was a great item often ten pounds a year for a single wig and some gentlemen owned eight or ten wigs little children wore them 
I have seen the bill for a wig for William Freeman, dated 1754. He was a child seven years old. His father paid nine pounds for it, and the same for wigs for his other boys of nine and ten. Even servants wore them. I read in the Massachusetts Gazette of a runaway negro slave who, quote, wore off a curl of hair, tied it round his head with a string to imitate a wig, unquote, which must have been a comical sight. After wigs had become unfashionable, the natural hair was powdered and was tied in a queue in the back. This was an untidy, troublesome fashion which ruined the clothes, for the hair was soaked with oil or pomatum to make the powder stick. Comparatively little jewelry was worn. A few men had gold or silver sleeve buttons. A few women had bracelets or lockets. Nearly all of any social standing had rings, which were chiefly mourning rings, as these gloomy ornaments were given to all the chief mourners at funerals. It can be seen that a man of large family connections or a prominent social standing might acquire a great many of them. The minister and doctor usually had a ring at every funeral they attended. It is told of an old Salem doctor who died in 1758 that he had a tankard full of mourning rings that he had secured at funerals. Men sometimes wore thumb rings, which seems no queerer than the fact that they carried muffs. Old Dr. Prince of Boston carried an enormous bearskin muff. Gloves also were gifts at funerals sometimes in large numbers. At the funeral of the wife of Governor Belcher in 1738, over a thousand pairs were given away. Reverend Andrew Elliot was the pastor of the North Church in Boston, had 2,900 pair of gloves given him in 32 years. Many of these he sold. In all the colonies, whether settled by Dutch, English, French, German, or Swedes, gloves were universally given at funerals. Early watches were clumsy affairs, often globose in shape, with a detached outer case. To show how few of the first colonists owned either watches or clocks, we have the contemporary evidence of Roger Williams, when he rode thirty miles down the bay and disputed with the Foxians at Newport in 1672. It was agreed that each party would be heard in turn for a quarter of an hour, but no clock was available in Newport, and among the whole population that flocked to the debate, there was not a single watch. Williams says, quote, Unless we had clocks and watches and quarter glasses, as in some ships, it was impossible to be exactly punctual. Unquote. So they guessed at the time. 
sundials were often set in the street in front of houses and noon marks on the threshold of the front door or window-sill helped to show the hour of the day End of chapter twelve